The podcast world is growing bigger every day, and Himalaya wants to help you navigate it. Himalaya is a brand new podcast app where you can find every single podcast you love and some future faves. Whether you're a podcaster or a fan, Himalaya has got your back. Discover personally curated playlists and show your favorite podcasters some love with Himalaya's tip jar. It's free, it's the easiest to use, and they are adding cool new features every single day. Go to your app store, download Himalaya, that's H-I-M-A-L-A-Y-8, and don't forget to follow Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries once you're there. Hey guys, before we get into our show, here's a podcast that we think you might also enjoy. Mysteriously Listed is a podcast dedicated to people who are interested in true crime. Maybe you are interested in a topic, but don't know if you want to commit to an hour-long podcast on just one particular case. Mysteriously Listed will share with you the top 10 true crime stories and mysteries in each themed episode, which will give you a teaser on each case. If you are fascinated by true crime stories, unsolved mysteries, serial killers and mass murders, you will love Mysteriously Listed. Listen to Mysteriously Listed on iTunes or anywhere you listen to great podcasts. What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode number 125 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for Sunday, 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 January 27th, 2009. I am Josh Cannon. 2009? Yeah, it's... Yeah, yeah it's 2009. 2009. Um, Skrillex is the biggest name in music right now. Um gas is really high i think gas was expensive back then yeah mike i'm uh clearly clearly a professional no folks <laughs> I, i'm just kidding it's not a decade ago it's now it's uh it's 2019 and uh i am highly unqualified to do this my name is josh cannon and i'm here with my co-host mike uh who thinks he's better than me just because he knows the uh, current date how you doing mike <laughs> I'm doing good. Um, this uh, term at school's been a little interesting. Uh, schedule's been a little bit different, so I've been on campus for a good chunk of the week. There's been a couple days where it's just like this really boring class early in the morning and then nothing. So then I have you know go home and then I have all. It's nice to have like that time, but like this class, I I hate it. I hate this literary criticism class because it's not at all what I thought it was going to be. Folks, when you think of literary criticism, what do you, what comes to what comes to mind? Uh, to me, I'm thinking uh, you are going to critique um, literary works and like yeah. write what what is you know or, you know critique it, not necessarily yeah. what's bad about it, but you know pick yeah, it apart. What works? Why why it works? What doesn't work? Why you, you personally feel feel that it isn't effective? And so on and so forth. Talk about the tone, talk about, you know, the style, talk about, you know, the characters and da 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 da. No. What this class is, is you are critiquing critiques of styles of of uh uh writing. What? Critique <laughs> critical writing. You're critiquing styles of critical writing. So you're reading 
critical writing uh, 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 pieces from uh, people who have their heads shoved so far up their ass that they can't see. And so they're talking about, you know, all these, uh, you know, they're talking about um, uh, just all this kinds of fucking shit that's just extremely boring and pretentious where they're talking about something rather simple, but expanding upon it for like what seems like 50 pages. And you're like, just get to the fucking point already. I see right through all your bullshit of all the big words you're using here. Like, your point is not really that complex you're trying to make, but you'd seem like, oh, I'm just going to throw in every single, like, $10 word I can come up with and, and to impress my uh, colleagues. And it's just one of those things, like, I hate this type of writing. It's annoying. It's archaic. I really think that in colleges and other places they should stop putting an emphasis on writing a particular sort of way for your professional papers like oh well if you're not using 10 20 words and over explaining the things uh then it's not professional uh it, it's like you know what fuck that just let people write papers however long they want to write them about topics that they're passionate about the way that they want to write them Instead of just trying to please a certain group of people and, and their particular preferences. Yeah, um, I mean, I get, I get having a certain like quality or a certain standard yes. of writing, but like a lot, a lot of these colleges and a lot of this kind of, you know, highfalutin kind of writing, it, it just goes too far sometimes. It does. I find in like the the higher, more more um, advanced levels of, of high writing and, and, you know, when I'm reading certain magazines or books or whatever, they like to, like, throw in a lot of French terminology, you know, that they've that we've adapted into the English language, and it's like, how the fuck, where do you, where when were we taught that? Yeah. I have to, like, look that up on the internet, but when, when were you supposed to learn what coup d'etat meant or tete-a-tete mm -hmm. Or so I am not I am not enjoying this class so far because it's not as all what at all what I thought it was going to be. I thought I was going to be writing critiques of of literary works, not writing about critiques of structures and styles of critical writing. That, that sounds like uh, that sounds like if I was to, if I became a YouTuber who did who did critical reviews of critical reviews that Nostalgia Critic did of movies. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Like nostalgia critic uh, critically uh, does a critical review of like Daredevil, and then I critically review his critical review of a, of the yeah. movie. No, or no, no. What it is, it's like if you went back and you looked at some music reviews of some of your favorite bands uh -huh. and certain albums, and you critique those critiques and the structure of those critiques. Oh, dude, that sounds awful. It is. Ugh, jeez. So yeah, the you saving said, grace about it though is that the essays that he wants us to write are not that long, and he basically is saying like, you know, I don't want that many quotes. So essentially, I could just bullshit a paper for a thousand pages and on hope a topic. that uh, hope that he doesn't listen you know? to this podcast. Yeah. Oh, he doesn't listen to this podcast. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> but you said something earlier, Mike, that uh, that 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 has been a source of um, friction, I would say, for our podcast, and that was the word schedules. <laughs> So uh, yep. as you as you guys may or may not be able to tell, this podcast is coming out at a weird time. The last few podcasts have been very erratic. I mean, I'll break it down 
even more than 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 I have in the past. Um, Mike works now. That's something he never used to do. That was like a non-issue. His schedule was pretty wide open as far as when he was able to podcast. So then he gets a job and he's working a lot now. Plus he's doing school and he has homework and stuff. But for me, I had a very regular schedule. So I was able to just, all right, Mike, when are you able to podcast? He'd give me a day and I was able to do it. Then what started happening is my schedule completely switched around during November and December, and I got all new gigs and lost pretty much all my old ones, some by choice and some not by choice. And so I got a whole new schedule of karaoke gigs that, or, or uh, trivia gigs that did, did not necessarily coincide with when we used to record. Yeah. And then on top of that, we've had this initiative, me and my bandmate Stephanie have had this initiative this year uh, and last year to where we want to go out and start playing shows in front of people. Like we want to get our band out in front of people's eyeballs and we've been doing that and it's been working out really well. But a uh, direct, uh, I guess, result of that is um, it's been, you know, our when me and Mike can record an episode of the podcast has been erratic. Uh, it's not, uh, we're not going downhill. We're not like losing interest in po- in the podcast. I love doing it. Uh, Mike probably loves doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's literally 110% a scheduling thing. And the tables have turned because initially it was me who was the one, you know, that, uh, you know, my schedule was, was open and like now my schedule is not open. And now your schedule is is is, is uh, kind of crazy, so it's kind of the opposite now. We're like now we have to like figure out a way around your schedule. Like my schedule, yeah, I've been working, but not as much as uh, the holiday season. So I've had some days where I I could have done it, but I've just I've just you know Josh wasn't wasn't available. But that's how it is sometimes. Um, it, it's. It's one of those things. Well, can you work with another person, another individual, uh, a colleague, and a friend? You, and especially with something like this, where you know we're having to work around our schedules and we're not near each other. So it's not one of those things where you know you just uh, whenever just head over to Josh's house, you know. And, and now you can't really do that. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's it, it sucks too because like we just. You know, we picked up this Himalaya sponsor and and they're supposed to be helping promote us on Mm -hmm. other people's podcasts and, you know, really help grow our podcast. And it just it's unfortunate. (laughs) There's certain things that are just out of your control. You can only do what you can. And in this instance, folks, we're, we're doing the best that we can here. And, you know, that's that's. All that we can do. And, you know, because, okay. like, I, I do want to do more with my life than just try to, than just be, like, some podcast dude who, you know, gets a few thousand listeners a week, you know? I mean, yeah. if this podcast was, like, my income, my main source of income, and, you know, like, it, it was my bread and butter, then, yeah, I would I would be like, sorry, can't play that show, I gotta host a podcast. But, mm-hmm. I mean, the fact is, is, like, I want to do music, that's what I've always wanted to do. Everything I've ever started is just a means of promoting the, my music, you know, uh, the podcast. I, 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 as much as I enjoy doing it, I view it as a, a source to, to get my music out to people as well. And, uh, you know, I really want to do that. And and um, I want to do the podcast too. And you, I can do all of it because I'm not married. I don't have a kid. I, you know, I only work 
Jesus Christ, I only work like 15 hours a week. So I have time, but you know, I, I just finished um, doing all the songs for this new album that we're going to be putting out, which is like a definitive edition of all of our songs, plus some uh, a few new tracks. And that, I mean, mixing and mastering, as we talked about last podcast, that's a whole pain in the ass. And, um, you know, we're, we're playing shows, any available chance we can get to do so. And um, now now we're in the stages of uh, finishing album artwork. So like anytime you go out and buy a CD and you see like the booklet and like the artwork on there, well, someone had to make that, you know, and, and someone had to format it. And, and just little things like like ha- uh, having to physically type out all the lyrics to your songs in, in the liner notes and type out the uh, back card with the track listing and you know, all this shit that people don't think about is like what we're having to do right now. And all that takes time. And, you know, instead of... Uh, you know, and my YouTube channel has suffered. You know, I don't have any ideas for even for a video, and it's already been a week, and I'm trying to do a video per week, and blah 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 blah. So, basically, it's one of those things. Like I said last time, anytime with my trifecta of things that I live for—podcast, band, YouTube—anytime I go too far in one direction with anything, the other two suffer. And um, unfortunately, the podcast has fallen victim to that. But it is—it is not forgotten. It is just something that no. is uh, erratically and... scheduled at this current moment yeah. in time. So that it will return back to a point of osmosis here soon, but um, just you know, put up with us for right now. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to make any guarantees because <laughs> you know you never know. Um, I'm I'm a little annoyed with my work though, scheduling me past my uh, uh, scheduled uh, time off on uh wednesdays it's really annoying me because i already I, I i went into my schedule and i gave them my availability and this is going to be the second week in a row that they've scheduled me past that that does not work i have a class at 210 i can't make a class if i have to work till two and that I, that's not possible okay i can't fly i i don't have the men in black car i can't like fly over traffic and shit with a flying car like that there's just no way that's going to work and it's it's really annoying because it's like it's the second time in a row it's like come on like really <laughs> yeah i already I'm, talked to you about i remember this. back when i was doing school like the the hell day for me i think it was like a thursday when the truck would come and i had to i had to be at the dam at stupid cvs at like uh i think 5 a.m in the morning is when i had to be there and i would unload the truck and put the shit away and all that stuff uh, until like I think 1030 or something like that. And then I would leave and go straight to class and it was a music appreciation class. So it wasn't even like a core class. It was just a stupid, like I've taken a class like that. Yeah. It was just one of those class in the summer. I don't think it was an elective. I think, I think it was a a class you, you did have to take, but it you know, on the grand scheme of things, it's, it's not an essential class (laughs) for anything. Even if you're going to school for music, you're going to appreciate what you appreciate, yeah. you know. But at least, at least you had time to get to school. Like this, this schedule doesn't. No, work No, I that did, way. but man, I was so fucking tired when I'd get to that class. I was, oh, in, yeah. I was in some kind of weird, like, uh, just trance or daze or something. Like, I mean, there there are fucking days, man, where I get a kickstart and like I I, I don't care. Like recently was one of those days. What's a, what are week. you talking about? Is that like an energy drink? Yeah, Mountain Dew uh, brand energy drink. Oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah, you got to with that shit, man. That's why, like, all adults drink coffee. Like, I've never been a coffee person until, like, I've been running into these situations where, uh, like, 
you know, recently, like I won't, maybe I won't sleep as much as I need to. And I'll be like working on a song and I'll just, man, I'll start just getting tired and I'm tired yeah. right now. I ate a fucking man. I went to, I went to this place called M shack. It makes it's like a burger place here in Jacksonville. They're pro- oh, I had a burger last night too. I, I went to killer burger, okay. which is a, which is an amazing burger place in, uh, Vancouver, but it's also in Portland. And, uh, the the burger that we well, get that's is cool, the Mike. You can butter. hijack my story. I, I mean, I was totally done telling my story. <laughs> you, you, so hey, go no, ahead. no, you can keep you can keep going. Oh, okay, thank this, you. This like... Thank you. We'll we'll get to your burger story in a second. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> One burger story at a time. It's burger time over here. Yeah, that was a, that was a really that was a really good game on the uh, original NES. By the way, <laughs> Burger Time. I think it was an arcade game too. But anyway, yeah, um, it was an arcade game. God, might as well call this two people with Asperger's try to have a conversation. <laughs> I don't think mine's as bad as yours, but I do think I have a touch of it, honestly. Um, anyway, uh, so I went to M Shack and in like the burger that you normally get there, it's like not quite enough to fill you up. Like you eat it and then you might be like hungry like two hours later or something like that. So like I wanted to ensure my fullness tonight, you know, so mm-hmm. I got the double and the double was way too much. I mean, we, wow. the, the burger came there, and it's one of those things where the first bite of the burger, you don't even have bread in your mouth yet. It's you're literally just like it was just a mouthful of meat, like ground Ooh. beef. Yeah, yeah. And it's like I like I like red meat. You know, uh, I don't like it as much as I did when I was younger. You know, I, I think as everyone as everyone gets older, they, they they're just kind of like eh. Maybe I don't want to feel like a, a, a fucking wheelbarrow of bricks is in my stomach for the next five hours. Because, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, your body gets shittier at digesting as you get older, too. So yeah, it's like I've noticed that. Yeah. So it's like for this sure. shit will stick in your stomach for hours. So, you know, now it's like, well, maybe I'll get a turkey sandwich or something lighter, you know, that won't hold me down. But no, no, not me. Like uh, not this time around. I was like, I want a cheeseburger today. Damn it. So I got the double and like, like I said, the first bite, it was just meat. I hadn't even gotten to the bread yet. And man, it was just one of those things. It was like super salty. It was super greasy. And well, it sounds like it wasn't that good of a burger. It, it really, it really wasn't. And now I'm sitting here and I'm like, I'm not nauseous, but I'm like one step below nauseous where like, Ooh. I feel good enough to where I could do things that I would want to do. But like if it gets any Not worse, too much. yeah, if it gets any worse, I'm going to have to lay down uh, in the bed and just like just just recover, Ooh. basically. So the killer burger, though, is delicious. It's amazing. So um, what I, I got was the usual, which is the peanut butter pickle bacon. And I know some people oh, like, ew, God. peanut butter and pickles on a burger. No, no, it's amazing. It is spectacular. Like the 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 say the sweet and savory thing and sweet and salty, it works like a charm. Mm. It it is really good. Well, that's great. I mean, I'm I'm glad you had a good time with your burger. I am feeling uh, I myself right now. I'm feeling sluggish and sloppy. You had a bad time at Burgerland. Yeah, M Shack is what it's called. <laughs> that's uh, that sounds like a a, a McDonald's game. Bad time. You know, yeah, actually, bad time speaking of that, Lane. McDonald's had a fucking game on the NES, and apparently it yeah. wasn't that bad. Mick Kids? Yeah. I remember playing Mick Kids. They had some other uh, uh, games, too, on different consoles. But I remember playing Mick Kids. Um, a little t- difficult at times, but yeah, I, I had fun with that. 
Yeah. So anyway, folks, this is a podcast about the show Unsolved Mysteries, although you wouldn't know it with the past 20 minutes. Hopefully uh, it'll be cut down to the last five minutes if I have anything to do with it. I've been trying to shove the chit chat in at the end now instead of having it all up front um, just to live up to our namesake more of un- uncovering unexplained mysteries rather than uncovering the mundacity of Josh and Mike's life. Um, <laughs> the minutia, I should say, the minutia of Josh and Mike's life. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, so you can uh, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and um, search Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar under the groups tab or whatever, and, and we should be, I would assume, we're the first one that comes up. Um, join that group. There's some great stuff in there that I can't mention on this podcast that might definitely be of interest to you. Um, and if you want to support us on Patreon, you can do so. It's patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. Uh, you'll get the podcast early when I, as soon as I start getting my shit together. Um, we've been recording these podcasts so behind schedule these days that by the time I get it edited and ready to go, it's like, man, I just got to drop this like now cause I'm already behind. So, but whenever I usually, <laughs> usually you get the podcast early, but, uh, you know, even, even if I don't manage to like squeeze that out, you're still really, it still really, really, really helps us. Cause neither me nor Mike are rich men. So it uh, definitely uh, eases the strain of everyday living uh, just a little bit. Yeah. You know, it could, hey, you know, that could be a cell phone payment, you know, or whatever. So it, it, it does it does make our lives a bit easier. And there's other perks in there, too. Uh, me and my bandmate Stephanie did a um, whole episode's long uh, length of a, a haunted house story. That was real. Well, it wasn't a haunted house. It was this weird stalker guy that... Uh, this family moved into a house and this guy, they started getting letters from this fucking creepy mm-hmm. dude who was like saying, so it's t- like commenting on their kids and like, Oh, I like, I liked the way you put the, uh, the easel for the painting in the, in the back, you know? I, so it's like, uh, the less cute and wacky whackers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was definitely somebody, uh, fucking with them and, um, yeah. they, I mean, it was like the, they just went through this whole ordeal. So it's more like the Circaville letter writers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much like that. So that's on Patreon. Uh, but anyway, we we're going to be covering two stories today. We were supposed to be do. We were supposed to be doing the uh, Tammy Faye and Jim Baker uh, segment, but uh, I I just simply did not have the the two hours documentary. Yeah. Yeah, I did not. I did not have the two hours necessary to uh, watch that documentary um, this week, but um, d- definitely next week we'll be doing that. Because I, Mike, I like I told you, I watched the first ten minutes, and within the first ten minutes, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm on board with this. Like, uh-huh. I, I can tell it's going to be a great documentary. So yeah. I'm excited to watch it and discuss it. Anyway, this is the uh, case of Kevin Hughes. This is the uh, the Nashville, Tennessee radio or chart guy who made uh the charts for the um the uh top 100 yeah uh for uh, country music this, this segment wow i mean it starts out and you got like the country music and it's showing the grand old opry and all the other uh nashville landmarks and for for those of you that grew up listening to country music in the 80s this is a, this is a you know a fun throwback for people like myself who are not a fan of country music, this is like, uh, really? 
not uh, at all a fan of country music. Oh no, that I being mean, said, I'm not either. But I, I, th- I just think it's kind of interesting because they like tell you yeah. a little bit about the music business in this. It one. is interesting. I, I it, it is. Even though I'm not a fan of country music, this is still an interesting and uh, solid case. Um, but it's just one of those things where I feel that a lot of that music is horribly generic, especially from this time period. Like um, people yeah. just sounding like almost identical to one another. There's not really much of a difference. I don't like country, but if I were to like it, um, and this this could just be a purely nostalgic thing, if I were to like country music, it would probably have to be like from the 80s or 90s kind of period um, because I, I do feel like it was more... I don't know. Well, it, yeah, I mean, I can see that. I mean, there are, there are some okay tracks here and there, but what I'm talking about by generic, and generic does not necessarily mean bad. It just means it's just a, an average uh, product. It's something where there isn't a lot of variety, and and I do feel that that's the case, especially in this particular time period yeah. of country music. Well, my biggest problem with country music has always been the fact that country music focuses exclusively on the lyrics. The, the lyric yeah. and the storytelling is like the most important part to country music. It's in, in the musicianship mm-hmm. and the musician, like, like kind of the song crafting artistry kind of takes a back seat uh, to a, to a larger degree. And it's more about the story and the lyric um, because like the amount of times that I've listened to a country song and they just all just these open chords strumming on an acoustic guitar with some slide in the background, yeah. maybe a fiddle here and there, but the music is very sparse, very boring. Nothing really interesting. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, especially from this particular time period. But but if you listen to the stories, the stories are like, oh, that's so sad, and that's exactly yeah. what the point of country is. It's, it's honestly like, southern blues. You know, like it's like another, it's an offshoot of blues singing. If you think about it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, no, hundred percent. Um. So anyway, um, this is the case of Kevin Hughes, 23-year-old Kevin Hughes, only 23 years old, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. The amount of times I read about people who are like way, who were way younger than me, who like did more, you know, with their life by that time, I'm, it just pisses me off. I see it all the time, and it's probably well, only I mean, getting the, worse. The guy, the guy who played Kevin though in the reenactment did not look 23. In fact, this the, the guy who played him, <laughs> he didn't really look anything like him, and it was one of those things where I don't think he had a mullet. So they just gave him like a fake mullet, and who boy, man, the mullet that they gave the guy, the actor who's playing Kevin Hughes in the reenactment for this segment, that is just prime late '80s, early '90s mullet mania right there, just mullet madness. Yeah, so th- yeah, and this originally aired uh, before um, uh, Billy Ray Cyrus's "Achy Breaky Heart" came out. So like the, the mullets, uh, they weren't at the height of their popularity. So I guess they, I guess the producers really thought they were being authentic to the country music scene by giving this person uh, what is now deemed like one of the lamest hairstyles ever. But maybe at the time it wasn't. Uh, I I personally don't think mullets look that bad. Really short on the side. I think, so, and I long think in the some back. of them aren't. Aren't terrible. Some people can pull it off. Kurt Russell, for one, and Big Trouble in Little China pulls that off without a hitch. Um, but the the actor in the reenactment, you have to be honest. That hey, was to not those a good of you mullet. out there judging me right now. That, fuck that was, you. Okay, like I think mullets that, don't look bad, and I I feel the judgment stringy, coming through the radio. <laughs> 
That was a stringy mullet that guy had. Like that was not a good looking mullet. Any fucking way. Any fucking ways. Um, it's a nasty mullet. 23-year-old Kevin Hughes was a chart director for Cashbox Magazine in Nashville, Tennessee. He was in charge of compiling the independent country chart. As chart director, he received playlist reports from different radio stations throughout the country. Based on these reports, he ranked records from 1 to 100 according to their popularity. A high position on these charts could be a great help for an aspiring musician or music group. And that hasn't really changed from that time period till now. Um, I'd say it's changed quite a bit in the way that the charts don't really have the same impact as they used to. Because most people don't really care about whether or not a song is high on the charts anymore because you have the, the rise of online piracy... You have the the YouTube uh, tracks where uh, a lot of the artists and a lot of the other um, studios that uh, no, my no, trust me, trust like me, dude. The, the industry people they pay attention to those numbers. And, they do, and they, but it's they put the money into the people who are, get, yeah, are getting the higher charts. That's why I, that's why you see online, you see Drake's face all over the place. You see Ariana Grande all over the place. Yeah, but. They're not doing that I would, because I would they, argue, they they're not doing that because they like them personally. They're doing it because they no, I know, they but made I the initial argue, investment in them and they're seeing that oh his yes. his numbers are doing good, so let's keep yes, put, but putting it's, money it's in. It's not them. the same it, it it's it's to them, to the record industry, okay, it might be similar. But the record industry, the reason why they're still putting high emphasis on that is because of the fact that they're still living in the past, as you can see by a lot of their actions. So when you look at you know songs that chart, I mean, there's been songs that top top the charts that were like you know just some uh, SoundCloud rapper or whatever. Like when, when was that ever going to ha- happen back then? Like a SoundCloud country singer, never going to happen in a million years. I don't necessarily think that it's just because of the place in the charts as the reason why these studios and these record producers are promoting artists like Drake. Drake is popular not just because his his songs, you know, hit the charts, is because he just seems to be a very popular uh, persona and to a wider audience. When you see like the internet and you look at like all like some the most popular facet of YouTube is the music videos. There's a reason why Vivo and these other artists started taking control of that because they know that that's that's the most that's the biggest aspect of YouTube. And then you have the rise of piracy and stuff like that I was talking about. You don't really have that kind of thing back then. So back in this day when you had oh such and such was a chart topper, you'd get more of like the average everyday Joe audience member to be like, "Oh, I'll go check that out maybe because it, you know, it was a popular album or or the record uh, seemed like it was uh well received nowadays it doesn't seem like that's uh, even i still that big feel like deal. i still feel like even back then um the charts were really more important for industry people and radio well that's right that's what i meant that's what i meant today it's it's not as important I still feel like it's the same amount of importance. We're talking about terrestrial radio, like the the band. If it wasn't important, they're not just going to select people that they personally like and put them on the radio. They're going to look at some kind of analytics, some kind of chart, some kind of data, and see who are scoring highest 
when it comes to YouTube plays, when it comes to whatever, some kind of chart, some kind of data is put well, together. That, I mean, some kind of data for sure, but I'm I'm specifically talking about the top 100. That's Guys, no have you found a mysterious uh, anything in this podcast yet? Has there been any <laughs> fucking mysterious element that we've gone over? I, I, I think we need to rebrand our podcast, Mike. I think it needs to be Society and Culture Cast uh, with Mike and Josh. <laughs> Well, if we just talked about the case, like no, we, I, I mean, love, I love talk, dude. Trust me, I, I, I love talking about this shit. But I just, I know people are like, you said this was a true crime. Po-. We're getting to the true crime in a second, okay? Calm your fucking mammaries. Um, okay, so anyway, we've established that this guy works with the the, the country charts, okay? And its relevance is up for fucking debate. So, according to his boss and co-workers, he was a hard worker and did his job well. Sometimes he would stay up until 10 p.m. working on the charts, which that's not that impressive to no, me. No, that's not that late. But, I mean, maybe to other people, maybe when you were supposed to have left by uh, like 5 or 6 and you're there till 10. I don't know. Um, I love that this segment, by the way, opens up with that typical classic yes. Unsolved Mysteries corny ass slide guitar, like just like God, how many times have they used that country ass music mu- music cue? And it's always for these southern states, even for the Withfield, yeah. Kentucky UFO Odyssey. It opens up with bounce, <laughs> It's like, dude, you're talking about UFOs. Why you gotta paint them like some little podunk redneck town? Which I'm sure Withville, Kentucky is. But it's like, come on, man. You don't play that music when you talk about a Colorado segment or something that happened in Maine. You only do it when you're down, <laughs> no, down they t- in the well, south. Well, they talk about something in uh, Wyoming or in the or near that area. They're going to play the, 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 the other Native American flute. Native American that, that, that fucking distant Native American flute. In the like far away in the background, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's that is true. Well, unsolved mystery stereotypes with their music cues. I see how it is. I, I'm not mad at you, unsolved mysteries. <laughs> but um, so yeah, he'd stay up till 10 p.m. working on the charts. Wow, what what a what a guy. That's so late. Anyway, I don't know why I'm like like harping on this guy who's yeah. not even alive anymore. Uh, so anyway, on the night of Thursday, March 9th, 1989, Kevin was finishing work on the newest charts when his friend, aspiring singer and songwriter, Sammy Sadler, stopped by. Now, this guy, he looks like a poor man's Billy Ray Cyrus. Yes. Yes, he does. He does. He, he, he looks like... I guess got a little bit of Southern accent. Just, he looks like a... I'm sorry, I can't help it. <laughs> you look at this guy and you get a Southern accent all of a sudden. That's how fucking stereotypically, like... <sighs> well, it's Sam is Sadler. <laughs> if you took... Look, man, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now. If you took most white men in the South and you cut their hair into a mullet formation, I'm just saying they would look like this man, Sammy Sadler. Uh, he's just got that very southern white boy look to him, with the mullet included. So, yeah. uh, <clears throat> at, a pro- at approximately 8.30 p.m., <laughs> I just feel like I need to talk in this voice from now for the rest of this segment, Mike. You're just gonna, it's, it's, my natural, it's my natural way of speaking, and I, just, I feel like it's necessary. And I'm not even over-exaggerating right here, because when people do the, the southern accent, the way they fuck it up is they go... Uh, too hard with it and it's really not it's more of a subtle thing 
So at approximately 8.30 p.m., they left the office to go to a nearby restaurant for dinner. After dinner, they made an unplanned stop at Sammy's work, Evergreen Records, so he could use the phone. While there, Sammy heard the sound of someone trying to open the door. Kevin looked outside and saw a man walking away from the area. He thought the man was black, but he was not sure. Uh, now, a few minutes later, the two left Evergreen Records. They looked for the unknown man, but they did not see him. Then they walked to Kevin's car. As uh, Sammy entered Kevin's car from the passenger side, an unknown gunman came up and shot him. Kevin tried to flee the scene, but he was tragically shot and killed on the street. Sammy, however, survived the shooting, despite a bullet severing a major artery in his arm. Uh, sorry, I got to shake that off, folks. I know it might be bothering you. Despite having, f- uh, ha- having five witnesses to the shooting, nobody could give a good description of the assailant. Probably because it was l- nighttime, I would imagine. Well, he was wearing all black, too. And if he was a black man, then that would have been even harder yeah. to, to see him because he was wearing all black. And it's not a racist thing. It's it's an actual thing. If you're looking at not, you know, it's at, in the middle of the night. You know, if he's a, if he's got a really dark complexion, it's it's going to be harder to see him. Mike, um, everything that you've worked for should be taken away from you for making a statement <laughs> like that. So um, I also want to mention, speaking of Sammy, Sammy Sadler. Um, the, the actor that they chose for the, re- this has seemed to be a common theme for this reenactment. Like the actors they chose to play these characters, these, these individuals, these people, once again, look nothing like the real, real thing. Uh, the guy who plays Sammy Sadler, he's like fucking, uh, he's got a full on mustache and shit. Like who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> he doesn't look anything like. Sammy I don't Sadler. remember being bothered by uh, the uh, the reenactors that they chose to play, but th- I thought they were fine in terms of their performances. But I'm just saying in terms of you know what th- their relation yeah. to the actual yeah. people. I must not was, been a, it was very 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 thin. I must not have been paying um, much attention to it, but I, I like the way that they shot the scene where uh, the robber, uh, well, not necessarily a robber, but like the guy Assailant. in the ski mask. The assailant. I like the way they shot that. Yeah, because uh, it, it it was quite terrifying, and and it would be like you're just uh just going hanging out, and then leaving the record comp store, and then boom, here comes this masked man, and just starts shooting you and your friend. Like that's that's something that anyone who's out on the town or around at night it is is definitely thinking about in some capacity sometimes. Yeah, you know, like what what you know what. What if something like that happened? And this is uh, this is a prime example of what it would it might have been like if it did happen. I've said it once, and I'll say it again, man. The show uh, did did a fantastic job instilling the uh, fear and paranoia that uh, there are lurkers around every corner who are waiting in the shadows, who, who are wanting to rape, maim, and kill me uh, at any t- any chance they get for no reason, totally unprovoked. Uh, this show, uh, I have to thank for that, and and I still to this day feel like there are constantly people out there that are just like right now. Are you just thinking about like while you're doing the podcast? There's some guy in a ski mask, you know, watching you, and you know. Well, he can't watch out, me in here in the window. There's uh, my windows. <laughs> the shades are. I have the blackout curtains. There's no way I could be being watched right now in a physical sense. I mean, now I'm sure through my devices, like Steve Jobs's kids or whatever, are watching me through my you know a phone or whatever, but. You know, I don't, I don't give a fuck about that. Bunch of nerds. That, oh, we just want to watch. We're a bunch of voyeurs. Blah. 
you know, like, but it's, you know. Wow. That went a direction that well, I wasn't expecting. Yeah, you know, that's the <laughs> exciting aspect of listening to this podcast. It goes in directions that you aren't expecting. I mean, we can't even get through a fucking segment that lasted probably seven minutes on Unsolved Mysteries. It's- well, that, that's the reason why I'm trying to expand the conversation on this, because the wikia is so short, there's not a whole lot to talk about. So I'm trying to make it so... There's still a little bit more. Mike has a plan, you guys. Be calm. Mike has it. <laughs> has this all under control. Don't worry. Be happy. <laughs> Don't tell me what to do. Fucking whatever that guy's name is. <laughs> what, what was that? What was that black dude's name that did that song? Um, Willie M- M- McGinnis. <laughs> no, I don't know what his name was. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, he's a composer now it's bobby mcferrin bobby mcferrin that's right yeah don't tell me what to do bobby mcferrin conductor that's what he is he's a conductor oh i made the song all with my mouth mouth noise as well it's like oh my god great awesome didn't he win a grammy for that fucking song Anyway, why I am I, I, I? I like the song. Why am I getting I don't mad? Know what's him? wrong with you? Don't worry. Be happy, Josh. What's it, Robin? Robin Williams was in that video. Yeah, and he was, he all, was he in the music video. Did his trademark Robin Williams smile? God, I miss that guy. Yeah. Ugh. So do I. Jesus Christ, that's a, that's a sad topic. Anyway, um, despite having five witnesses to the shooting, nobody could give a good description of the assailant. After his murder, there was speculation that he had been killed in a dispute connected to his work, possibly uh, in a, in a professional hit. Uh, now we've done so many, so much babbling and tangents on this segment. You probably don't even remember what we were originally talking about. Um, so this guy, you know, made the charts for uh, the Kevin Hughes, the top 100 uh, country singles or whatever. And yeah, there was talk at some point in the segment about there being some kind of a scam going on or some kind of a you know, kind of payola thing where uh, they were wanting, uh, possibly wanting Kevin Hughes to do some kind of chart manipulation. But he never, he never participated. He never showed any signs of doing that. They investigated that and they found that he Mm -hmm. wasn't actually doing that. And they were saying um, basically that, that if, if they, if he wasn't participating in the chart manipulation, like they wanted him to, they could have just had him fired. They didn't have to kill him. And one of the officers investigating said he he his position wasn't important enough to kill him, which sounds yeah. like crude, but it's true. Mm-hmm. He's just a guy who makes the charts for country music people. I mean, yeah, he's not yeah. not worth killing, but we'll we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. So they felt that a professional hit was very unlikely since the killer shot but did not kill Sammy and left several witnesses behind. That's another key piece of evidence there is that if it was a professional hit, I highly doubt that the killer would have left so many witnesses alive. So um, it is unknown if the man that saw Kevin near Evergreen Records was the shooter. He was described as either a black male or a white male with a ski mask. The shooter was believed to have dropped a hat that was found at the scene. It has the inscription, World War II veteran and damn proud of it, with a picture of a combat infantryman. Uh, several theories came about surrounding Kevin's murder. One was that Kevin had been involved in or was witness to a chart manipulation scheme, uh, but there was no evidence of that. Another theory was that Kevin and Sammy were the victims of a robbery gone wrong. However, this theory doesn't make sense, as the assailant had shot both victims without attempting to steal anything from them. Also, the assailant chased Kevin down and executed him. An armed robber would most likely not go to these kind of lengths to kill someone. And then another theory was that this was a uh, the target of a misguided grudge from an angry manager or performer. 
but we that one that one kind of makes sense like it, it, that that one especially uh if it's an angry manager but i mean maybe not manager but like an employee like that's my guess that's a, my immediate guess that would be some employee was pissed off at him because they knew where he worked uh, and because they had worked there maybe he did something where he caused them to get fired or something and then they you know went off the murder seems so extreme though in, in that case him. like i know well some people are like that man that you know they're fuck fucking crazy yeah like i could see some shit like that going down in like like death row records where suge knight you know was dangling <laughs> yeah. dangling vanilla ice's ass off of a yeah. balcony saying you gonna give us the rights to that music aren't you and he's like yeah okay just don't drop me off this balcony please me and my my fucking uh, fade pre-justin bieber ass looking self you know um <laughs> So I could see so, that shit going down with that, yeah. but like with this, this, the country music chart maker, yeah, yeah I don't know. It just seems very so weird. So Sammy Sadler, uh, one thing I wanted to mention real quick is that he was an aspiring country singer. Um, he moved to Nashville to try to chase his dreams, and uh, because of the shooting, he was left without the ability to play guitar, which is honestly pretty, pretty sad. That sucks. But... But I have to be honest, though, I don't think he would have made it anyway, because they play a little bit of his music at the end of, of the segment, and it's just, it's really generic country music. It was a cover song. He was covering... It was a cover song. Yeah, he was covering, um, it was some old soul, like, Motown song. Mm-hmm. Forget which one, but yeah, it was a cover song. It wasn't even his original yeah, it wasn't even his original song. His his vo his voice is meh. So it was one of those things where you know I I just gotta be honest here. I don't think he would have made it. Period. But it would have been nice to see if if he had a fair shot at it. Cause he never got that after uh, the shooting. Right. So um, this was solved, this case. In 2002, Richard D'Antonio, a disgruntled former employee of Cashbox, was arrested and charged with Kevin's murder. Investigators determined that Kevin had found out the, that D'Antonio had been accepting money to place artists on the Cashbox music chart list. Wow. He had also learned that Chuck Dixon, a record promoter at Cashbox, who appeared briefly in the original segment, Praising Kevin's fairness wow. and creating the list was behind the scheme. <laughs> wow. Holy shit. Damn. He knew. He must have known. Wow. Chris Rogers called that shit too. Someone had asked if there was ever a segment where um, someone who ended up getting convicted actually appeared in the, you know, inter as an interviewee in the segment. And Chris Rogers did tag the, the Kevin Hughes segment. Chris Rogers, he, I'm thinking like, I don't think he's a real person. I think he's just a, a an amorphous <laughs> cloud of all, all things, knowledge of unsolved mysteries. So, he, so he's an unsolved mysteries bot. Yeah. He's a, he's a, yeah, he's a, <laughs> exactly. He's a database. Uh, he's a cloud, you know, the cloud or whatever. He's like that. Uh, I don't think he, I've never seen any pictures of him either. Chris Rogers is a really cool guy in our group, by the way, if anyone's wondering, uh, he's, he's cool for various reasons, but anyway, uh, so yeah, that because the, they do they interview this guy Charles uh, Chuck Dixon in the um, 
in in the segment and he looks like he looks like rob reiner kind of a little bit yeah and he's like yeah, a little bit yeah he's like you know kevin hughes was was a very fair he of all the chart directors i've worked with he was the best and he was extremely fair and all this and it's like oh okay you know whatever and um, so anyway, authorities believe that Dixon had D'Antonio kill Kevin wow. in order to keep him quiet. In fact, a witness stated that Dixon said Kevin would be handled or gone and that he would not be able to reveal the truth about the scheme. However, Dixon died in 2001 before he could be charged in the case. Along with the cash box scheme, other evidence connected D'Antonio to the murder. He matched the description given by witnesses of the shooter. One witness noticed that he walked with an unusual side-to-side gait, which was similar to how D'Antonio walked at the time due to a back problem. Black hair, or, or black cat hair, found in the hat left at the scene was similar to a cat that D'Antonio ah, owned at the time. A damn cat. <laughs> uh, it's not the only time pussy will get you in trouble. Hey! One-star <laughs> review for us. Um, also, a witness told police that he had sold a 38 caliber pistol to D'Antonio shortly before the murder. This type of gun was used in the murder. The witness gave D'Antonio ammunition, which was the same type that was used to kill Kevin. The witness also told police that on the day of the murder, D'Antonio had test fired the weapon into the witness's backyard. Investigators recovered bullets from his backyard. One was determined to have been fired from the same gun that killed Kevin. The witness, along with D'Antonio's wife, were told by D'Antonio to lie about his whereabouts in order uh, to create him an alibi. Investigators did not believe he could have been the shooter until the witnesses came forward and told the truth. In September 2003, D'Antonio was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. He will not be eligible for parole until the year 2036. However, he died in prison in September 2014. Good. I'm glad they're both dead, but it's a shame that um, that uh, old, uh, Chuck Dixon never actually got yeah convicted. Wow, dude, that's fucked up. I didn't really. I did not see that coming. I didn't mention that Chuck Dixon, Dixon guy um, in the um, segment or whatever. But yeah, he looked like this kindly old dude that was interviewed talking about Kevin Hughes. Oh my god, dude! I'm gonna have to like go back and watch this segment now, knowing that looking at that, at that guy's face, knowing that he knew exactly what happened to to kevin hughes you know and looking at his eyes as he says he was uh, uh of all the radio or chart directors i worked with he was the best honestly and he was he was uh extremely fair wow that's crazy man yeah Jeez. well he, he probably was telling the truth he probably was one of the best and he was extremely fair but because he was one of the best and he was fair um, that's why he had him killed. Now you've got to die. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's shit. That's how, that's how he sounded. When- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like a demented German professor. I'm sorry that you are so fair, Mr. Hughes, but now you've got to die. Sounds like a shitty Bond villain. Perhaps. Could be. Like Goldfinger's brother. More, more like gold toe. Yeah, gold toe. <laughs> oh, man, getting a good stretch. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you can, just like get a good stretch and just stretch your arms and 
I, is I this, need a, is this is this the this is a yoga uncovering yoga cast? Yeah, I need, I need that one of those <laughs> stupid ass bells that they always chime in those yoga tapes. It's like dong downward dog. So it's a New Jersey dong, yoga upward dog. Yeah, I don't know why I always have to give it. It's just fun to say down dog. That's just fun. Just say it right now if you're listening to this. It's it's fun to say it in that accent. So, uh, yeah, wow, that's crazy. That is the story of Kevin Hughes and, uh, you know, Tennessee, man. Memphis, Nashville, all those places. Uh, big, big music scenes. We talked to some people last night. Um, actually, uh, the show we played last night, if anybody, you know, cares about this, uh, the uh, guitar player from Saving Abel, Scott Bartlett, um, Mm-hmm. was a uh, headlining at the show we did yesterday. And um, he was with the American Idol singer, Chris Johnson. Um, he was playing guitar with him or whatever. Um, they, they are based out of, uh, I think it's either Memphis or something like that. But um, yeah, they're really cool. Um, yeah, I can't find him on here. He must not have risen through the ranks very high. God, I'm like looking at all the American idols and like I'm like seeing like are do any of these motherfuckers still have a career? <laughs> I wanna I wanna I just wanna see that. American Idol winners. <laughs> Let's see who still has a career. Uncovering American Idol. I know folks. this is such bullshit. <laughs> like this podcast has just been bullshit. And I understand why nobody likes this episode. If if or uh, at the same time, I understand why people would like it. All right, let's go through here. Kelly Clarkson, does she still have a career? I don't think so. I would say I think no. she does a little bit. Um okay, we got uh Maddie Pope from season sixteen. Who the fuck is that? What what yeah, song what song has she done? I can Then you got Scotty McCreary from season ten. A lot of the country people like him. So I think he's still I think he's still doing stuff. Carrie Underwood from season four. Yeah, definitely uh definitely probably the most successful uh out of the bunch here i could be wrong about that uh you got fantasia barino from season three uh i my urban crowds like them some fantasia when i did uh karaoke in the more urban oriented rooms um i don't know chris allen ruben stuttered philip phillips david cook jordan sparks taylor hicks caleb johnson some fat norwegian looking guy wow Okay, wonder what music he did. Lee DeWise, Trent Harmon. Man, I don't think any of these motherfuckers are doing anything. That's such a stupid show. What an awful show. Why did I take the time to do that just then? Yeah, why did you take the time? I don't to know, do Mike. Why didn't you fucking stop me? It's not all about. <laughs> it's not all my fault. Why didn't you say, "Hey, let, let's not do that"? I'm so full of fucking red meat right now, Mike. I can't see straight. So I need your help a little bit. <laughs> You know the guy, like, when James Brown walks on stage, the guy behind him that yeah. holds his c- fucking cape and shit when he, like... That needs to be you for me right now. <laughs> like, I'm the guy limping onto the stage trying to do my shtick, and you need to be the guy in the back, like, fanning me with uh, fucking, like, ether-soaked uh, fa- washcloth or something. <laughs> Some kind of whatever they use. Some okay. S- smelling All salts. Right. So so I need to be your carer today. Yes. That, that's what you're yes, saying. Yes, I need to be babied a little bit on this episode, Mike. That's so fucking hard. <laughs> so, um, 
yeah, like you can keep that in if you want, but maybe you, you No, could, I am yeah. absolutely keeping it in. And I'm I'm keeping in the fact that you said I can keep it in so people will know that you at some point wanted me to take it out. <laughs> so you'll have all the egg on your face. I don't think that's how it works. Or the red meat in this case. <laughs> this is not a vegan friendly podcast this time around. I'm sorry. Honestly, I side with you vegans for uh, how I'm feeling right now. I'm like, man, maybe there's something to the whole vegan thing. So you're getting nauseous now. So it's it's not like I said, I'm not, not nauseous, but like I'm, I'm nauseous. Yeah, one step below nauseous for sure. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, uh, our next segment, so Mike's going to handle the next segment is uh, and our final segment for this podcast, which some people are probably like, OK, good. Is, when is this going to be over? Yeah, uh, <laughs> and you're right. And you're right to think that. So the final segment of this uh, train wreck so far is uh, Michael Rosenblum. And this is one of the earlier segments because this is from season one. Oh, of course classic season one and this has quite a few twists and turns in it so it's an unexplained death case and to this day the death is unexplained so on april 2nd 1988 30 volunteer firemen gathered on a steep bluff overlooking the mongohella river just south of pittsburgh in baldwin borough pennsylvania at the suggestion of a psychic they were there to search for the remains of Michael Rosenblum, a young Pittsburgh man who had been missing for more than eight years. For Michael's father, Maurice, the search was another desperate attempt to find out what had happened to his son, who disappeared on Valentine's Day, 1980. Valentine's Day. Bummer. Yeah, really. From a road that runs along the foot of the cliff. According to Maurice, there's not the slightest possibility in my mind that he could be out there alive. I pray that the one in 10 million chance would happen. I guess you always have some hope. As long as I don't have a body, there's always hope. During high school, Michael began experimenting with drugs and soon became a heavy user of prescription painkillers. His life spun wildly out of control and his family struggled to help him get back on track. They insisted that he go to drug rehab. On the night of February 13th, 1980, a month after Michael was released from drug rehab, he began behaving oddly. His mother, Barbara, found a bottle of painkillers in his bedroom, and she kicked him out. Michael left with his girlfriend, Lisa, in her car. And so she did this because she was practicing tough love, which apparently was not like this well-known form of parenting uh always because that's what i thought it was always oh tough love that's always been around like but apparently it was kind of a new thing around this time yeah i you know i think most of us are semi-familiar with that term but if you're not it was a um tough love it was basically a uh more of an authoritarian type uh, upbringing, really. Like when mm -hmm. you did something wrong, you were punished, or you were uh, something was taken away, or you were you were your parents uh, maybe they were in a situation to prevent you from dealing with negative consequences, but instead they allowed the negative consequences to happen to you, or something like that. Uh, known as oh, we're showing you tough love, and and, and it was a parenting style 
that was uh, kind of uh, trendy uh, in the 80s mm-hmm. and 90s. And uh, it, it it really turned out to not be so great for a lot of people. Uh, what, oh, yeah. what comes to mind for me a lot of times is like what the most extreme cases of tough love would be the kid getting kicked out of the house and being told, don't come back until you get off of drugs or uh, realize that you are not gay or realize that you are not trans and then you can come back or whatever. Cause like this would yeah. happen a lot with you uh-huh. know gay people back in the day and trans people and drug people. And uh, you know, you could alcohol, you could be a fucking, uh, I don't know. You Alcoholics. could be like an atheist and your parents would probably, you yeah. know, whatever uh, that, that whole you lived under my roof. So my rules, that kind of thing. And there's actually a website here, um, some examples of uh, ways that parents might use tough love. A teen skips school. Excuse me. Sorry. That might be an edit right there. Um, <laughs> Are you sure you're not going to? 5935, Josh Burke. That sounded bad. No. I'm, that sounded like I'm not... the red meat. Oh, it's coming back. Coming back no, it, it is. <laughs> the cow's ghost is coming back. It's, it's fighting back. Josh Burp. Cool. Um now, some some examples of ways parent might use tough love. A teen skips school, so the parents notify school officials that their child is a true is truant. What a fuck it, really, mom and dad? What, what does that mean? Uh, that you're skipping school, basically. That you're not okay. going to school. Sorry, what, I, I, that, that's a that's a ten dollar word I've never heard before in my life. You and this $10 word phrase, man. I'm starting to think uh, the, the, your, the phrase $10 word is a $10 phrase for you. <laughs> uh, so another example of tough love would be like a parent discovers marijuana in a teen's room and the parents call the, pol- oh, yeah. the police to report it. Oh my God, dude. Wow, that is some tough love. Well, you, mom and dad, you dicks. Uh, a teen a teen skips her court ordered community service and the parents notify the authorities a teen is non-compliant dude you could go to jail for that yeah pa- mom and dad you assholes what are you what are you doing a teen experiences withdrawal from nicotine after a parent throws away her cigarettes the parent refuses to buy her any more cigarettes and doesn't give her money to get them i mean that's that's more reasonable well that's well that's that that shouldn't just be tough love. That should just be common sense. Yeah, that's yeah, that's like parenting one hundred and one right there. <laughs> okay, here's here's one that that actually a few of my friends ha- actually went through. A parent tells an eighteen year old that he cannot li- uh, continue living it, uh, at home if he doesn't have a job and doesn't attend school. That kind of was a thing for some of my friends. Like if they, uh, for me personally, um, it was mandated. I think it would be like either or. It would be go to school. Yeah. Or get a job. Right. I remember when I was younger, um, I think after, by age like 16, like it, it was mandatory for me to have a summer job. Like my parents w- would not not allow me to work over the well, summer. My parents weren't like that because, you know, um, I, w- I wasn't really the same individual as I am now when I was 16. So like they didn't want, they knew that that wasn't really a good way to to try to race me, yeah, because I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would not have succeeded in in that. Um, but I can see why a lot of parents do that. I mean, when they get at least, at least if they're still living with you when they're eighteen, like yeah, it's like you're an adult now. Go to school, go to college, or get a job. Here's another like, one. Or. Uh, a nineteen year old is told that he must be home by midnight on the weekends. The parents lock the door at midnight, and if he's not inside, he has to find an alternative place to stay. 
I had a friend back in the day. Uh, she would come over and and if and if she didn't leave my house by, I think it was, I don't know what time it was, but if she didn't leave my house by a certain time, she had to spend the night because her grandma uh -huh. locked the door and and she would not be allowed in. So here's the problem with that. If you're a household that has a spare key, well, that's not going to work. Well, the problem with it, because, the problem because, with it is because because the, the 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 daughter or the son would just find the spare key and just go go in the house. Well, the problem is is <laughs> if you can't, what if you don't have another place to stay? Would you gonna sleep in your fucking car on the street? Well, I mean that is that is really. Rough, if anything happens yeah. to your kids and you're doing this whole tough love shit, you I mean that's on you. That that's on you. I mean they're kids, dude. Like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, with Michael Rosenblum, though, it seemed like he was technically an adult at this time. So, and he'd already been to drug rehab, and he already did all this, this sort of stuff. And I guess they were they were desperate. Yeah. That's and it's not a guess. They were desperate. They're, you know, trying to they're trying to drive their point home in a very you know to they open were trying. They were looking at other success stories of tough love from this time period, and they were like, well, you know what, we're desperate. And we're doing this because we love Michael and we want him to get to get clean and we want him to be better and we want him back in the house. But, you know, we can't, you know, we don't know what to do anymore because he's already been to rehab. And as soon as he got out of rehab, he, you know, got back into popping pills again. So she found a bottle of painkillers in his bedroom. She kicked him out. Michael left with his girlfriend, Lisa, in her car. And Barbara's quoted here, I said to Michael, don't come back until you're completely off drugs, until you want to live your life the way you should. And that's the way it is. I've always faulted myself for that, and I probably will till I die, and that I didn't say, okay, well, we'll try again, maybe tomorrow will be different. And that's easy to say that in hindsight, but I can see why she did what she did, because... It was at that breaking point, that point where you're like, what else can I do here? Yeah, I still don't think she should have, you know, kicked, no. kicked him out. That's, I mean, no. that's not, he's not gonna. But what, how, what about his girlfriend? Like, is his girlfriend, like, how, you know, like, what, I wonder why she isn't included in any, you know, of, of, uh, of this in terms of being in any way at fault for some things. Cause it's not like he went out by himself. Oh yeah, well I mean she she so was probably either they weren't she that was probably close. enabling him, you know. Yeah. Or she was enabling him. And if that's the case, well that's a problem. But maybe the parents didn't know that. And they didn't know that that about uh his girlfriend. So, and there's a lot of things you don't know about your kids sometimes. And it, this seems to be one of those examples, but I don't know for sure if she was enabling him or not because there's nothing that really confirms that. But as usual, because it's the season one segment, it's just it's got that cinematography that is just just really awesome. And it's gritty. Gritty's a good way to put it. It's gritty and realistic. Uh and it just it it, it just adds that wonderful mood to uh the whole proceedings. It's a sense of professionalism because it, it feels like even though it's shot for a low budget for the time, it doesn't really look like a low budget show. Unlike the uh, later seasons, like after they left uh, NBC, because those look pretty cheap. Yeah. In comparison. Yeah. In terms of the cinematography and other elements. 
So, but the next day wasn't different. Uh, after a night of partying, Michael became extremely agitated. He insisted on driving Lisa's car. Then he left her stranded at a local gas station. So that's his fault. Okay. So there we go. That answered the question there where he just left her there. So like she, if she was enabling him in some way, well, she's not going to enable him anymore here. And if she wasn't and she was supportive and could have helped him get on the right track, well, he was just like, fuck this bitch. I'm gone. <laughs> so Michael's last words were go to my parents' house. I'll see you there in two hours. And Michael's father, Maurice, said he thought his son would return. I figured, well, he took her car and he took off for a day or two. He'll be back or he'll call. And we waited that night and there were no calls. And I became seriously worried. My wife felt immediately that it was a terminal situation and that he was dead. I didn't. The way that he says that, a terminal situation, like that's, you don't don't really hear those words. That's a $10 word, Mike. Often. It's not a $10 word. Terminal is... is you know, that's that's a word that's even used for like an airport terminal, you know, and it's used for it. It's it's talking about like a deadly. It's another way to say deadly situation. So Michael's mother said it was not characteristic of her son to disappear. He would have never just left. When he left, there was money in his bank account. His clothes were in his closet, and if he was going to go anywhere, he would have said to us, "I plan to do such and such, and I'm going to take my money and go." But his money's still in the bank account. Well, I mean, every parent's going to say stuff like that. Well, he would tell us where he would go. He would tell us that he would leave. And then there are plenty of cases in this show. And there'll be plenty of cases in the future where some son or daughter will go missing. And then the parents would be like, well, they would have told us that they were if they would have went anywhere. Yeah, not necessarily. So the following day, the Rosenblums filed a missing persons report with the Pittsburgh Police Department. Private investigator Stephen Turksack was a detective for the department at the time that Michael vanished. He's quoted here, You need a starting point. In any homicide case, your dead body is your starting point. In this case, the car would have been your starting point. So it's important that we find the car as quickly as possible and then take the step steps to notify the media for their help and ask the general public if anybody saw the boy who was in the car or if they know what had happened to him. But after two weeks, they had found nothing. So Michael's father began his own search. He offered a reward for inf information. He posted flyers and he traveled as far as California to find friends that Michael might have contacted. Maurice said that he had hoped to find his son and put him on the right track again. Three months later, on May 21st, 1980, police in Pittsburgh uh, in a suburb notified Lisa that her car had been found. Official records show that the car had been impounded on the very day that Michael had vanished. Maurice said that he was shocked. I mean, understandably so. I would be. Like, that's really rather convenient. Right. Uh, and, and very suspicious. So we couldn't believe that they had the car for 91 days. Absolutely couldn't believe it. The Pittsburgh police had contacted every police department in this area looking for that specific car. And here that car was discovered in the police bonded tow yard. Less than three miles from where we're sitting right now. Yeah, that is definitely uh, fishy. 100%. Smells like just rotten cod. Oh, so according huh. to police reports, just two hours after Michael left Lisa, a Baldwin police unit found the car in River Road. Two of the tires were flat, the keys were gone, and the engine was cool. That's also very suspicious. 
The car had been towed to the Baldwin Borough car impound, where it remained, resting on its bent tire rims for the next three months. According to private investigator Turksack, if we knew the car was on River Road, the whole picture would have changed drastically. If we had known that car was found in Baldwin that morning, within hours, I strongly believe we would have known by now what had happened to Michael. Not if it was a police cover-up. Right. So when Maurice found out that the police had found the car, he said that he immediately thought his son was dead. He demanded an explanation, and the Baldwin police claimed that they'd mailed Lisa a letter the day after the car was found, saying that they had impounded it. Lisa says she never received it. They eventually produced a copy of the letter dated the day after Michael disappeared, but Lisa still insisted that she never received a letter from the Baldwin police. Maurice Rosenblum suspected a police cover-up. In my opinion, they deliberately misled the Pittsburgh police in the search, assuming that my son was never even involved. Why didn't they search for the young lady that owned the car? Because all this was done to cover up a more sinister fact. That's why. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like much of a stretch to me here. No. I mean, they didn't search for for the the woman that owned the car. Uh, they were like, "Who cares?" Even though you know, it's like that's not a normal police procedure. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So around the same time, Maurice claims that he received two anonymous phone calls. The first, they said that Michael was arrested, and I wrote it off as a crackpot. After the car was found, I received a second telephone call that just simply said that. Your son was arrested by the Baldwin police. Click. They were gone. Wow. Very terse. Can you imagine, like, if if, if someone you know goes has you know goes missing, and and then you get like a random phone call like that? Uh, well, my dad. What my, would your reaction? My be? dad had that experience when I got arrested for my DUI back when I was twenty-one. He's <laughs> 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 like, uh, "Would you like to accept the charges from the Alachua County the per- Correctional System from Josh Cannon?" <laughs> <laughs> so, it was, so it was just an automated phone call. Yeah. Well, you know, the the first part yeah. is, and then you just like say your name or whatever. And then as soon as it connected to my dad, all he said was, well, good job, Bubba. Good job. Like, (laughs) (laughs) he already knew what, you know, what happened. Like, I didn't need to explain anything. It was like, yeah, he finally got a DUI. Like, I knew, (laughs) like, I knew he was going to, you know. So, yeah, that was, that was. But that's not the same because this is very mysterious. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a a little different, a little different than. Because it, it just it sounds argumentative or like just very defensive. Because it's just like your son was arrested by the Baldwin police, and then like whoa, man, take a chill pill. What the fuck? You're harsh in my mellow, man. <laughs> so Maurice offered a reward for information about Michael, but after five months, the only concrete clues were the discovery of the car and the two anonymous phone calls. Then on July 15, 1980, a shocking turn of events. The Baldwin police issued a warrant for Michael's arrest. They claimed he was wanted in connection with a robbery that had taken place two and a half months after he had vanished. And according to private investigator Turksack, now the big twist in the whole thing was that everybody that has talked to the people who were the victims of the robbery, they both told everyone from day one that the person that came in there was a white man and he had aviator-mirrored sunglasses on that covered right above his eyebrows and down almost to the bridge of his nose. 
So the only part that they actually could see would be the forehead and the chin line. But yet the composite was made without sunglasses. There's no doubt in my mind that this composite was made from that first flyer put out on Michael Rosenblum back in February. It's just too perfect. And they actually did show them side by side, and you're like, oh, yeah. I mean, it looks like it almost an identical copy mm-hmm. to uh, the composite uh, that was uh, put on the flyer. And speaking of the flyers and stuff, uh, his his father spent like half a million dollars you know, going in investigations yeah. And, yeah, he's, and trying to figure out what happened to his son. Yeah, he spent a lot of money on that, you know, which is like, oh, geez. I was like, didn't we do a case recently where someone, they were looking for their son and he was in Mexico and they kept yeah. flying there and they kept, it's it's like their son had literally like they the parents would bring uh, pictures of their son and show the people and they'd be like, yeah, I saw him. He was just here 15 minutes ago. And then all of a sudden for no reason, everyone in the town would just like clam up, you know, Uh it's, it's like similar. And that family also spent like a shit ton of money looking for their kid in Mexico. Well, I mean, I I get it. You know, if, if it's your, your kid and you have the income, you, 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 you'd exhaust every resource you could, but, um, it's particularly tragic in this case because of what is eventually revealed that after all of that money and all that time, he didn't find any answers. What really sucks what is it, the, what, it what really sucks is the people who don't have the money to look for their kids yeah. and they just have to. Oh well, fuck. Hopefully, I find little Billy, and then they go. Throughout the rest of their life with no closure whatsoever. Yeah, that's... Oh, like the... um, I don't know if I should even say her name. The lady who keeps posting in our group... Uh, well, I'll say her name because I'm not saying anything bad about her. That uh, De- Denise Horvath or whatever her name is. Uh-huh. Sorry if I mispronounced your name if you still listen to this podcast. Um, I feel like her name's Denise. But yeah, man, this lady... I mean, she posts in our group all the time. Uh, she, she actually was uh, featured on Unsolved... Well, I don't know if she was on Unsolved Mysteries, but they did profiled her son. And her son went missing in somewhere in Canada. And, um, I mean, he's been missing since, like, like the 80s, I want to say. And to this day, she's still posting about him all over social media and, you know, this, that, and the other. And, and like, she just is obsessed, you know, with getting answers. Well, yeah, it's, 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 it's your kid. It's, it's, it's your blood. I just literally don't have the parental thing, so like for me, I just don't, I just don't understand, you know. And I, I well, don't know I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a parent either, but I totally understand. I just, I just lack. It's, 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 it's a bond that they have that's unique, and when you lose that connection, for especially for reasons you don't know, like that, that just becomes an an obsession. And you will not stop until you get the answers. Mike, if I went missing like that, would you become obsessed and and never cease your search for me? That's yeah, different. a little awkward, huh? See how <laughs> see how long it took him. Would to you respond? do the same for me? I, I don't think you Mike, would. So look, there there we go. Here's the thing. <laughs> I'm a really busy guy. You know, <laughs> I would think about you occasionally. <laughs> and I would I would send you my thoughts and prayers uh, occasionally. That's great. You know, I w- I would I would do whatever I possibly could 
But the thing is, I'm limited. Would you make a Would have... you make a YouTube video uh, about me? You know, if anyone sees Josh, can you have him? You know, report back to me, Mike. I would at least do something like that, and then I would do other things. Like I would contact the police, try to see what's going on with that, <laughs> keep up on any you know potential leads. <laughs> But it's one of those things that I love putting you in these awkward positions. Mike. I don't. I don't have the money that Michael Rosenblum's father had uh, to be able to do anything like Mike. That. Like I don't just, have the income to, to hire a private investigator. Just to reassure you, I, I fully do not expect you to do a goddamn thing if I ever turn up missing. Uh, and and if you did, if you didn't do anything, I would totally like be like fair enough. I mean. We were podcast yeah. buddies, and and you know, I never even met the guy in person. Um, same thing if you ever get involved with the law or something, like if there's some kind of like drug den that you were secretly doing. I, <laughs> I, officer, he was just a, a. I never met the guy. He's some internet guy. I don't know him. I did a few episodes <laughs> of some podcast with him. That's all I know. You know, that's that. I'm. I don't know Mike who. I don't know of a mic, so I mean, that's how I'm reacting in that situation. So don't feel bad about not looking for me if I go missing. Okay, so one week after it was issued, the warrant was suddenly dismissed. Something very strange was going on in the borough of Baldwin. Were the Baldwin police working to solve this missing persons case, or were they trying to hide the truth? A full inquiry into the case cleared the department of any wrongdoing, but years later, new evidence emerged. Six and a half years after his son had disappeared, Maurice Rosenblum received an unsigned letter. It urged him to talk to a former Baldwin police dispatcher named Margaret Hazlitt. The tip ultimately led to accusations that the department, headed by police chief Aldo Gaburi, had mishandled Michael's case. And Margaret is quoted here, and she says, Mr. Rosenblum showed me an anonymous letter that he had received indicating that if he contacted me, I had information regarding the vehicle that Baldwin police towed. I then told him that approximately two or three months after the vehicle had been towed, the chief of police ordered his clerk, Fred Capelli, to type a letter notifying the owner of the vehicle that it had been towed. And the letter was backdated to February 15th, the day after the vehicle was towed. The chief's former clerk, Fred Capelli, confirmed Margaret's disturbing story. Approximately May 20th, the chief told me to type a letter in reference to the car that was towed from River Road. I never thought anything about it. I did what I was told to do. You know, he's my boss, so I did what he told me to do, and I didn't question it. Fred claims that after he typed the letter, the chief ordered him to sign the name of Chester Lombardi, the senior officer at River Road that day. Lombardi is now deceased, according to Fred Capelli. He had asked if Chester Lombardi had signed the letter, and Chester refused to sign it because it was backdated. So the chief told me to go ahead and sign Chester Lombardi's name to it, but don't mail it. Put it in the file. And that's what I did. Based on these new revelations, Maurice wrote an angry letter to the Baldwin Borough Council. I'm kind of, I'm just imagining how, how angry was it? Was it like a little perturbed, (laughs) but, you know, polite? Or was it just, you know, just completely filled with profanity? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah I, that would be interesting to see like what level of anger are we talking about here i mean because unsolved mysteries it's such a proper show they're not going to be like yeah. he was like fuck you you fucking fuck you know <laughs> um 
Yeah, uh, I, I probably would have thrown some profanity. Oh, and, and by the way, for any of those of you reviewing our podcast, yes, I do think cursing makes me cooler. So fuck you. <laughs> that's one of the that's one of the claims that has been stated in uh, our some of our reviews in the past. Uh, uh, guys, I don't know if you know this or not, but swearing doesn't make you cool. Fucking yes, it does. It does make you cool. I am cooler now for swearing, you dumbass. <laughs> yeah, who who's cooler, the the swearing badass or or the square who's being all polite and be like, "Oh gosh, darn it." Oh gee, Willikers, so oh, Sam Hill. <laughs> I'm just fucking with you, one star reviewer. Keep giving us one stars. It fuels me. <laughs> it sustains me. So Josh is definitely salty. Oh, today. I, th I, think I, th I think you think could even part of it is because he ate all you know all that red yeah, meat. Yeah, very salty red meat too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it it has made me salty, and uh, and it it's like borderline butt hurt. I would say honestly, but that's neither that that has nothing to do with the case of uh, Michael <laughs> Rosenblum. So so if I wrote if this this was my kid and this was going on, like I would be there would be profanity in my letter. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I would just be, would be fed up. And I'd be like, you fucking morons. Or you, you, or you just not, not just fucking morons. You know, you despicable pieces of shit. Like, the, you, you fucking liars. Right. <laughs> supposed to uphold the law. And you're supposed to tell the truth. You're supposed to do all these things. And you betrayed all of that. What the hell is going on? Yeah, it, it would really change your viewpoint of the police forever. Like, you would never look at the police department the same way again. Right. Ever. I, I mean, you know, it, it's it's like I said, you know, some of these cases, I've said this a billion times, but some of these cases, they're, they're tearing up swatches of carpet and, and, and you know, putting uh, that, that uh, whatever that chemical is to, to see for traces of blood and they're you know, luminol. luminol, and they're they're going through all these extra steps, and then in other cases, like, oh, it was a suicide, or oh, we lost the evidence, or oh, you know, whoops, whatever, and it's like, there's such a disparity. Or Making of a Murderer, the Netflix series, which if you haven't no, seen I haven't yet, seen, I have not seen you it. You definitely need to see that. Yeah, there's not one, but two seasons now. Okay. Um, and speaking of Netflix, they also just came out with a Ted Bundy documentary. Yeah, I heard about that one. Yeah, a lot of my, some of my friends have been watching that. Yeah, I, I need to sit. I, I just, I gotta. I, 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 it's like I forget about these things. Whenever I finally do sit down to watch something, I forget they exist. But like, that's the exact kind of shit I like watching. So, apparently, uh, so he wrote the angry letter. He demanded an investigation into what he thought was a cover up. Understandably so, because there's like uh, already multiple. Uh, bits of evidence that point to a cover-up. Like, I mean, like, just a neon sign that's pointing to the word cover-up. <laughs> so the council held a hearing on the matter and dismissed Chief Gaburi for interfering with the, the investigation into Michael's disappearance. But the Civil Service Commission voted to reinstate Gaburi as police chief. Police chief. Chafe is better, really. If you think about it. <laughs> I mean, he's less of a chief at this point. And a police chafe. Yes. Because he's he, chafing he people's chafes balls. my ass. <laughs> so, finding that there was no misconduct. 
I don't know how you can do that considering the events that had transpired. Well, to tie into the first segment, I got friends in high places. <clears throat> yeah, it's a country song, but it's 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 a play on the lyrics because in this case he had friend, and I've explained the joke, and so it's not funny anymore. Shame on you, Josh. Proceed. As you were. So, they have never published a transcript of their hearings, but clearly they didn't believe Fred Capelli. Fred thinks it's because the chief had friends on the commission. At the time, the secretary of the Civil Service Commission was Robert C. McFall. And he's quoted here. There's been some innuendos made about the way it was handled, and all I can say is this commission rendered its decision strictly on the evidence and the testimony that was presented at the hearing. The guy sounded fucking fishy to me. I mean, the, the guy probably reeked a fish well while, i mean jesus you know, he christ was sitting there. the guy in the former segment like he was like yeah kevin was uh you know incredibly yeah. fair and amazing music ch- uh, chart director whatever he he was responsible for ch- uh, kevin's murder i mean it's like yeah. man some people are just able to lie right to your fucking face like the deceitful little but the way snake. that he said it he just he came across as defensive to me he went through it like super fast you know, he's sitting in the chair and he's just like, there's been some innuendos made about the way it was handled. And all I could say is this commission rendered its decision strictly on the evidence and the testimony that was presented at the hearing. <laughs> I got to go. Like, no more questions. <laughs> I can't hear you. I can't hear you. <laughs> and I love how you use innuendos. Like, really? I've never heard innuendos used in that manner. It, it only Usually it's used, you know, just for like sexual things, you know, sexual innuendos. No, I mean, you can use it. In, uh, I mean, that's you that's can, not that but it's just something that you don't see used very commonly in that type of sentence. So in April of 1988, eight years after Michael disappeared, a bone fragment and some scraps of clothing were found near River Road. The bone couldn't be identified, but the pieces of clothing matched those that Michael had been wearing. Maurice Rosenblum is quoted here, I'd contended all along that something had happened. The possibility that I might have proof in my pocket makes you kind of sick. The final proof was discovered four years later. A hiker in the River Road area found a piece of human skull and turned it into authorities. Tests confirmed that it belonged to Michael Rosenblum. After 12 years of searching and wondering... Michael's parents were finally able to bury their son. But for them, the agony isn't over. They still want to know how and why Michael died. And they will never know. Sadly. At least they were able to find a portion of his body so they know for sure that he's that he's dead and they can put him to rest. But... They're still going to have that, you know, part, part of them that's just going to be like, what happened? Uh, his father, Maurice Rosenblum, he died in 2008. So he died never knowing what happened to his son. And police chief Aldo Gaburi passed away in 1997 at the age of 76. Now, after a series of investigations into Cooley and Mesonick by the Pennsylvania Attorney's General Bureau of Criminal Investigations, no charges were ever filed and in fact, when the outcome of the investigation was made known to representatives of a magazine article fed by people with an agenda in the borough, there was an instant settlement in a lawsuit against the magazine. There's just so many things about this case that are it just reeks of cover-up. 
even though it hasn't been confirmed, uh, it's in all fairness and in essence, it's 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 a cover up. I mean, there's all these elements that point directly to a cover up. I mean, the fact that we still don't know to this day what exactly happened to Michael Rosenblum. Uh, the theories are kind of interesting. Some some people have uh, came up with. Someone was uh, mentioning that maybe he was in custody with the police and something happened and he died and they decided to cover it up. I mean, that's a possibility. That would make sense why they would go to all these lengths to cover it up. Maybe, uh, you know, he was in custody. Uh, one of the police officers went off the handle and... Uh, killed him or something and so then they covered up uh the murder there's other theories that maybe he knew some things about the police that the the police did not want to be divulged um it, it, there's just a lot of things about this case that it's just it's typical just unsolved mysteries and but like it not not typical in like oh an average you know blah whatever way typical in terms of like this is the type of like prototypical unsolved mysteries case where it's still unsolved it's still a mystery and it's one of the cases that really draws people in like this is the type this is the type of case that kept people coming back to watch the show because it's it's so intriguing and there's all these other elements that are that are just so no pun intended, mysterious, where you're just like, well, what exactly happened here? Yeah, who? I think it was on the Danny Casolaro case, or might have been someone, uh, one of the uh, journalists gave the quote that police have a rule in this country, when you screw up, you cover up. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah, probably. I mean, you know. What What are your thoughts on the case? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the guy getting, uh, you know, disbarred and then reinstated and, you know, the other guy was saying that like he had friends in the city council or whatever it was and, you know, all that, all, you know, all that's fishy as hell. They probably should have had a different team of investigators on the case at that point. I feel like it was tainted, um, and, and they weren't going to get a good investigation or proper investigation. Uh, there was just too much, um you know the water had been muddied too much by the the people who were on it especially the one dude who with the that weird last name um who uh was disbarred and then reinstated um and then you know having the the, the yeah yeah and then having the letter you know post dated after the fact and all that shit it's like you know come on man like that's so that's so wrong. Like that's like clearly very unethical, and you know. So that's, I think the whole thing with the with the uh, conviction, you know, the warrant for his arrest for his involvement in a robbery, and they're and they're using uh, the uh, the police sketch. It looks almost identical to the one that was used for uh, the search to try to find him. That was set up by his father. Uh, that was on the flyers and then the whole thing where then like a week after they're like no there's no warrant like no we, we, we what what warrant yeah <laughs> it stinks 
But um, yeah, so that's that case. Do you have any? Do we have anything else to say about it? No. All right, cool. Well, it looks I have to give a quick shout out to Noah Enriquez, uh, who is a member of our group. He made a uh, piece of artwork with Josh and I that is a lot of fun that he just posted on uh, the group. Oh, really? Oh, I gotta um, check it out. Yeah. So that's it's really great work. Thank you. Oh, damn. Now I'm all like very appreciative. I, I definitely appreciate that. Noah Enriquez. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I, mean, I recently got drawing tablet, and after thanking and drawing, I can't put this. I might do a more. Let's get to the meat and potatoes of this segment, Josh. Sightings, Mike. <laughs> 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 that is fucking. I love like the crazy surreal, like <laughs> yeah, like half, uh, like half realistic, half like just uncanny valley of how we look yeah that's that's awesome man that's that's great dude thank you for that that's that was hilarious wow okay well yeah i guess that's um the end of the podcast if you want to um follow me and mike on youtube for uh some more great content we are completely separate but always equal on on the youtube channels you can find mike at ocp youtube.com slash ocp communications he's a movie guy he talks about movies he reviews movies mike what was the uh last movie that you uh that you reviewed or you talked about black christmas the 1974 uh film that was Kind of a uh, early slasher film. It's directed by Bob Clark, who would go on years later to do a Christmas story. And Black Christmas is a much different Christmas movie. That's for sure. Um, uh, I also watched a few uh, films recently uh, by Curtis Hansen. Uh, he's a director who's no longer with us. He did LA Confidential. But for me personally, I remember him more as a director of thrillers. So I had a little mini marathon of the thrillers that he directed. So I watched The Bedroom Window again with uh, Steve Gutenberg in a serious role. And uh, he actually pulls it off, surprisingly. And it's actually one of the best romantic thrillers that I've seen. That's genuinely sexy and romantic, but also genuinely thrilling and interesting. Um, and I saw his second... Uh, film that he did that was based on the thriller genre, Bad Influence, a film with Rob Lowe and uh, James Spader. And that was that was pretty good, too. I liked that one. Um, bad Influence was bad timing. This came out in 1990, really soon after the whole uh, sex scandal, sex tape scandal mm -hmm. with Rob Lowe. And it's crazy knowing about that because there's a scene in this film where Rob Lowe is watching a sex tape that he, he taped of uh, James Spader's character banging some other chick. And he's sitting in a cow in a chair, eating some yogurt or whatever. It's like, this is like prime bad timing. Like, holy fuck. <laughs> like, it, it, it's, it's one of those things, like, it's a, it's a coincidence, but it's a stunning coincidence because it came out so close to that, uh, to the sex scandals. Um, and I also watched The Hand That Rocks a Cradle again, uh, with Re Rebecca De Mornay. Uh, that film didn't hold up as well for me personally the second time around. I thought it was a great thriller. 
when I first saw it. The second time around, I thought it was a bit too slow-paced, uh, a little bit too formulaic. But overall, I like it okay. Uh, Re- Rebecca De Mornay saves the film. Uh, her performance as a psychotic nanny, Peyton, is absolutely phenomenal. But without her, I don't think the film would even be memorable, let alone uh, a tolerable effort. So that's that's what I've been doing, and, and those are be the next uh, reviews. Um, Josh, it doesn't seem like you... Have you done anything? Mike, I've done stuff, okay? No? I, I, I've done stuff. You did the, he did the video on Unsolved Mysteries, the Unsolved Mysteries reboot. Yeah, unfortunately, like I was saying earlier in the podcast, uh, you know, just kind of our lives and the, the just the band being kind of the number one priority in the last few months. Uh, my YouTube channel has kind of been suffering, too. But if you would like to check, I mean, I've still put a lot of hard work into the videos I do put out, especially the ones that are not the, the vlog style formats. But some people only come to my channel for the low effort vlogs where I'm just kind of speaking off the top of my head. Um but then there's other videos I do that are really, really high production. Um, mm-hmm. You can find my channel at youtube.com slash dancing with ghosts. And please check out Dancing with Ghosts on Spotify or Bandcamp or iTunes. Uh, you know, check out our music and purchase it if you like it or just listen to it because the streams help us yeah. out too. Um, but yeah, the last video I did on my YouTube channel is uh, the Unsolved Mysteries being uh, rebooted. Uh, new episodes coming to Netflix soon. We talked about that may, uh, in depth on our last podcast, but I have a separate video of that, of just my thoughts about it, where I'm pretty much saying similar stuff uh, yeah. as I did in the... Well, uh, speaking of that, I actually heard somewhere that it's it's possible that it's confirmed that there's going to be no official host. Oh, Okay. That is but, interesting. But it's not 100% yet, but I've just been hearing some rumblings that that might be the case. Uh, so how I know is this, it? no offense. So how is no it? No offense to some of the other true crime podcasters. Um, but no, <laughs> I don't want them hosting the show. Because <laughs> there was like a fan, uh, like fan poster somebody did of some uh, true crime podcasters. These two guys. It's true crime garage, Mike. Let's not uh, true crime let's, let's not skirt around the issue. <laughs> Uh, true crime garage and you know they, they they do some good work and everything um but they're just not the right vibe for the show a guy with his backwards cap and they're looking like dude bros in a country music video so i was thinking like uh, i was thinking like a kevin like two kevin james's okay <laughs> kevin james's <laughs> it's like jay and silent bob over there hosting <laughs> a damn uh, so okay so so now they're speculating that that, that that the show's not going to have a fucking host so how exactly is it Unsolved Mysteries at all at this point? If, yeah. if you don't even have a host. Keith David, uh, he actually did a post and saying, oh, they're looking for a, a, a host, you know, or, you know, if they want a host, like I'm available. And I, I could, you know, I could see Keith David has a great voice and he's mysterious. I don't know who that is. So that would be interesting to see that. Um, he's an African-American actor. Oh, okay. He's a black guy. Mm hmm. That's cool. I, I could see, I you know, whatever. If he's got a good voice, I mean, it's really all about the voice. That that's that's what I that's all I care about. You know. <laughs> oh, he he is a perfect voice for this kind of thing. I mean, you got fucking uh, what James Earl Jones, 
he's he's he is he still alive? Oh, yeah. I could see him doing it. Morgan Freeman? <laughs> no, I, I'm I, no. honestly Morgan Freeman has burnt himself out as far in my book. Like he's just been in. I don't think he's burnt himself out nearly as much as The Rock. I mean, fuck sake. But I'm yeah, so but it's almost like Johnson. Morgan Freeman has believed his own legend status now, and he's just yeah. in too many movies now, and it's too much. Yeah. You know, my voice. Well, he actually hasn't been in that many movies. I feel like I, wasn't he in some Disney? something or other i don't know he might have been I, I don't know for sure but it, i mean the rock though he is everywhere and it seems like if there's a jungle in the movie <laughs> the rock is going to be in there's it. a jungle in like the at this point it's like i'm just going to call the rock jungle gym jungle gym he's just in every single fucking jungle movie like the, the next film one of the next films he's going to be in is, is jungle cruise it's like he it, it's it's like he has this attraction that he can't resist to these Look, movies that have him in I'll a do jungle. The movie, but there's got to be a jungle, and if there's not, <laughs> you're gonna have to write a jungle into the movie somehow. <laughs> have you ever uh, noticed how The Rock kind of talks like Obama? Like they have similar vocal cadences. Yeah. Anyway, guys, it's uh, nearing two hours here on my counter, and me and my bandmate, she's in the background this whole time, very patiently. Uh, we have other shit we want to do tonight with the last bit of time we have. We're probably going to scheme up uh, new music video concepts and uh, come up with album artwork so we can drop this album. So uh, anyway, um, I guess that's it. So until next week, we will talk to you later. See ya.